Welcome back to another episode of Black Man Do Talk, where we have overdue conversations from a black man's perspective. It's your boy, Caleb Edward Lee Berry, a.k.a. Kakashi. I am one of your hosts, Street Hymns. And we got a special guest. Talk to us. Tell us who you are, brother. Darren Haygood, a.k.a. Theo Blue. Oh, we got to turn your mic up, man. We got to turn your mic up. Let me say it. It's Darren Haygood, a.k.a. Theo Blue. Yes, sir. Visiting y'all from Cali today. So Already. From Cali? Yeah. You drove from Cali? We're going to talk about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Is it like a Cali, Texas that I don't know about? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I was about to say, that's a drive. Yeah, that I thought you was in Abilene. Last week, and I came out here for you. Okay. It was... Yeah. Already, we here. Look, man, snaps for the people. That's what's up. What's what's Cali weather like right now? It's been abnormal. We've been getting getting rain. We're not in a drought for the first time in my whole life. Oh wow! uh, Indeed, indeed. I'm not gonna lie. It's a little warm right now. Like I've been wearing my jacket, but it's kind of crazy. I'm kind of I'm kind of mad, Caleb. You actually haven't complimented me on my jacket all day. Hey, bro, is that mine? It has my name on it. (laughs) I think he let he brought this. He let me brought this maybe like two years ago. Oh wow! And I was like, oh snap, Caleb Jackson. Hey yo, what the heck? First of all, give yourself a button, not a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, I forgot all about this jacket. That's hilarious. Wow, man. <laughs> yeah, man. Anyway. Oh. That's your jacket back. Hey, was that like a Letterman you, jacket? Yeah, that was from Young Life. Because I used to work with the kids. Caleb oh, okay. loved the kids. Man, that's that's probably why people kept thinking I work with you when I wore that. Yes, you probably. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, well, that's what's up. Man, <sighs> Mr. Theo Blue, man. I kind of want to jump right into it, family. Um, you put up a post mm, not yes, too long ago. Yes, sir. And... I just want to say, you probably one of the most kind-hearted, level-headed people I know. And so when you put a picture up of you in that orange suit mm-hmm. in, was that jail? Mm-hmm. Jail? That threw me off. I'm like, what'd he do? <laughs> how did he get here? So, so how did you end up, how did you, Mr. Darren, end up in jail? I was out protesting um, my alma mater, Abilene Christian University. Uh, shout out. Just uh, <laughs> say, so what are we doing yeah, this yeah, moment? Yeah, shout out. <laughs> shout out, buddy. <laughs> you know, I was doing what they taught me to do, is what I thought I was doing. Um, protesting systemic racism on the campus, in the curriculum, in their whole understanding of the divine. And, uh, it was a bit provocative, you know what I'm saying? And it was uh, the weekend of, I think all the alumni were coming back that weekend. So it was alumni weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, you was, was, you a, was, lot of, you a lot of bit provocative. Yeah, this was, uh, okay, you turned up on them. I was yeah. shirtless with, with get out on my chest with a noose around my neck. 
and the letters ACU. And I was just standing on campus. And at first they were treating me kind, you know. Um, and then somebody called. And yeah, they arrested me, took me off the campus. Indeed. So, How loud were you, you say you were, if you had to guess? Um, I wasn't talking. Oh, wow. So unless someone came and asked me a question, I wasn't saying anything. Oh, wow. You so just, you so you basically just stood conversation there. starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Did anybody, did any, uh, how many interactions did you have with that? Just like people coming up to you and whatnot, did they, I and say, what did those conversations sound like? Yeah. So it was some that were coming out and they were just asking questions about what was going on. Some mm-hmm. people would come and say like, I fully support this. I'm so <clears> glad <throat> that you're doing this kind of thing. And then there was others who were saying like, I don't understand like, what is the message here? And... A part of my training, I'm in a public theology program, mm-hmm. and so what I've been learning is that what what happens in a protest is you have this this art piece that's provocative and that draws attention to something. For sure. But what I was trying to see was, oftentimes, when you interpret what the art is for the person you remove their responsibility for the work that they're supposed to be doing and participating in this justice act. Mm -hmm. Right. Hmm. And so I kept flipping the question back to them all saying, what do you think this means? Mm -hmm. Right. So that it doesn't become about some message that I said or whatever it is, as much as the shared interpretation of this collective space, a black man shirtless with a noose around his neck would get out on his chest and hanging from a cross that has the words ACU on them. What does that mean to you on this campus? Mm -hmm. What does that mean about what this campus is and this space is? So some people were processing that. And that was a lot of beautiful conversations. Uh, But then you had uh, some others. Like there was one, it was a white brother that came up to me, and he was just like so intrigued, you could tell. He just wanted to know more. And when he came out to talk to me, and to try to have this conversation, a white woman came up to him and was just, she was, you could tell she was obviously making up a reason for why he needed to get away from me. Mm-hmm. And I look up, and inside the cafeteria, you see just white faces glued to the wall with cameras all just kind of observing, intrigued, yeah. interested, mm-hmm. but too scared to actually have the conversation. And it's, it's crazy because <clears throat> moments like these, you, you think you'd want to go viral, and so you set up a camera beforehand. You set up, but you didn't do none of that. You yeah. didn't have a camera crew. Like, all the footage that I saw you post was from, from other people, apparently. Yeah. Because yeah. it wasn't yeah. for you. It was, it was truly about reform on the campus. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, if you want to keep this in-house, let's have this in-house conversation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, before I start talking about my own PWI Christian college experience, um, for you, could you tell the people not only – your, you know, your, your activism and problem that you had with that particular campus. But tell them your history of what you've done on that campus mm-hmm. and how long you've been there. So January 2011 started there, invited to be a part of the Bible program. I uh, got a scholarship to be in the Bible program. And so that's four years, started as like a Christian ministry major, then went on to biblical text because they were really pushing me to be a professor back there. So it was 
them wanted me to go to their grad school and they were going to have my wife and I because we were both there and both doing really well in the program. And so they both wanted us to come back and be professors there. And so wow. that was four years of undergrad, three years with the Masters of Divinity, um, a lot of investment inside of the place. Indeed. And That's you have wow. your you have your MD. Wow. Mm. Masters of Divinity. Wow. Come on, man. Come on, black, black man. man. Come on, black man. Got the <laughs> Masters in Divinity. Sheesh. Okay, keep going. Good loving. Yeah, so, I mean, as you already know, uh, my family used to work there as well. I still have family that works there. And so I have family that was in the res life, uh, family that was moving up in a lot of the programs there. Mm-hmm. And still my sister-in-law works as... Um, I think one of the program advisors up on the campus. Okay. So we got deep connections with uh, the school um, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so you said one of the things, and you can talk about it briefly or details, however you want to do it, but like you're, you're, you're protesting and wanting reform at the school. Mm-hmm. What were some things that you saw there that you was just like, yeah, this ain't, this ain't where it needs to be, especially being at a Christian school, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's a journey, right? Because I, I grew up, conservative Christian of Southern California, kind of like these bubbles of church that started in the South Mm -hmm. and came to Cali. So you would have thought they would have had a more progressive dimension to them, but Mm -hmm. they were more like little hubs. And so I get here under the understanding that these people are going to teach me what it means to know God, follow God, and to teach others. For sure. And so from that basis, I remember getting into my first class on missions okay and at the time it was really big on incarnational missions right you go into a city and you live like those who are there um and it had a specific emphasis on jesus being with the least of these okay right and so my wife and i at the time were thinking about being missionaries in haiti uh, because that's where she's from and so it really resonated with us and so we we took that in uh, we took the uh, communal dimension of living from Acts very seriously. So we were living in this community, house with people. Um, and we made it a regular practice to build relationships with people who are experiencing homelessness. Yeah. And working inside of uh, the lower income communities inside of Abilene. And the more time that we spent out there, we were just like, all these professors live out here, but none of them out here like that. For sure. And so how are they teaching us to live this way when they themselves don't live this way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so we were really wrestling with that, but it came to a a really strong point when my wife and I started volunteering at this church. And on Wednesday nights, um, there's a a group of like 12 kids there, and 10 of these kids are black kids from the community. Mm Mm-hmm. And we started doing it there. It was part of a volunteer uh, program and scholarship that we were in. And so we started building relationships with people in the community. And my wife had done such a great job with it that when the church had opened up their job for youth ministry, she applied for it. Yeah. She gets the job for the summer. She's the youth minister. We started going to the church on Sunday. It's an all-white church. Mm-hmm. But the Wednesday night Bible study is all black. Mm-hmm. And none of the kids in the Wednesday night come to church on Sunday hmm. and so we're tripping like are we at a different church you know so we're trying to figure this out yeah but m- like half of the church is made up of professors from the school the school 
right? So it's this weird dynamic of the deacons and things like that are all there. So we start trying to get some of the history of it. And they're like, well, we used to feed people in the surrounding community, and the families used to come. And then these kids just kept coming and never stopped coming. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing that ever bridged the gap with them actually being a part of the church community. Mm -hmm. And so we started really trying to bridge that gap. But in that time, we, we saw that they were more than fine with us coming to their communities, but they were not willing to come the opposite route and come this way. Route. Yeah. And so while the church was asking us, like, okay, well, what can we do? We want to support y'all. We want to help. And it's a lot of white people in this regard. And so we said, this is the trend that we're seeing. Like, we can go to their homes, and they'll even come to me and my wife's house, but they don't feel comfortable at the church space. So would you guys feel would you guys be willing to come into their spaces to build these relationships so we can kind of cross this gap? And we just kept getting the runaround until the people were just like, we don't feel called to those people. Like, we, we're called to college students, right? What? Yeah. Wait a minute. And this is the church that you were serving at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Talking about the people that's in their neighborhoods? That's, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. But continue. Okay. So pe people with plenty of time, you know what I'm saying? It's not like they don't have the time to do it. They're <clears> asking, <throat> how can they help? And so we're saying, this is how you can help. And then they say, well, that's just not my calling. And so we started wrestling with at this time, like, well, what does it mean for Christians? What is, on one side, what are we doing? Because we're, we think we're doing what these people taught us to do. Mm-hmm. And on another side, what happens when Christians are using spiritual language to hide away from doing the very thing that our spirituality calls us yeah, 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 to yeah. be? Yeah. Mm. And so that kind of sowed the seeds of that. And so while we're doing that, we're like, man, we're still working inside of these lower income communities. Now we're just doing house church with these families at our home. And I'm using all of the resources that the school taught me. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with any of this stuff, but they would teach us stuff like Lectia Divina or spiritual readings of the Bible, um, the African Bible study method, things like that. Um, and those are like hmm. small uh, portions of the class. But a majority of our learning was on church history, on Martin Luther and yeah. all these other people or uh, church fathers or all of these things that did not teach me how to actually reach the people who look like me. For sure. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, how did I spend seven years of Bible learning and ministry training to be completely worthless to my own community in terms of offering them something spiritual? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that's, that's thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of investment into this. And I feel <clears throat> like I have nothing to substantively contribute yeah. to my own people. Yeah. And so that it was at that time... Uh, I had a professor that kind of walked me through a lot of it, but I was going through an emotional breakdown of like, I feel like I've been trained, spiritually trained away from the people that I was raised among. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, hmm. And from the very people who Christ has called me to serve. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this Okay, so uh, quick question. First of all, does systemic racism exist in America? <laughs> this is interesting. You want me to think long about this? I want you to take your time, <laughs> sir. Take your time, sir. 
And I was about to say, before you even answered that particular question, how about breaking down this idea of systemic racism? Yeah, because it's in interesting a, saying, attributing what is known as systemic racism to what's going on at your solitary college. Because mm-hmm. it's like, man, like, you would suspect that this is like a, a one-off instance, right? And doesn't happen commonly. Mm-hmm. But I remember I put up a tweet one time and I was like, man, like, I actually didn't experience racism until I went to college. And uh, it was at a white, predominantly white college, mm-hmm. predominantly white institution. And it, like, went crazy, and people just started saying the same things that mm-hmm. I was saying. And I was like, man, mm-hmm. I went through that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is people from different colleges, yeah. and you could just pick your college and say, hey, if it's a predominantly white institution or a Bible college, which essentially most of them are, if it's a Bible college, mm-hmm. ask the black people their black experience at their, at their college. Yeah. And you'd see a surge of black students that had negative experience racially at their colleges where Christ is being preached. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was like, wow, I felt affirmed. I didn't feel alone. And it was one of those things where like, even us as black students, we came together at that time because it's like, yo, we got, we all we got. Yeah. Right. Um, I remember the first time, Mind you, I'm, I'm, I'm there second semester. I didn't get to do rush week and stuff like that and mm-hmm. do all the fun stuff everybody did. I was in the second same. semester, right? Yep. And so I didn't know nobody. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I'm like, oh, first day, you know, college, you got to, you know, sit in the front. And we, you know what I'm saying? You, you get all the knowledge. You get to know everybody, et cetera, right? And so I'm like, you know, I'm green. I'm going in there. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit at the front of the chapel because we have chapel every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I believe, or something like that, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so for me, I was like, all right, but let me sit at the front. So I get there early. I'm sitting at the front of the chapel. I'm like the second and third row. I kid you not. Off rip, all the rows around me fill up. Mm-hmm. And I actually see the usher ushering people in to sit on the rows around me. And it gets to the point where chapel's starting, worship's starting, and my row is empty. I'm in the front, bro. I was like, man. And so what I do, I sat in the back of my niggas. Yeah. Because they was all up top yeah. on the second row of the chapel. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I'm like, yo, yeah. this is where the black people. And I saw, I was like, man, like, why am I trying to fit in if I'm fitting in a place I'm not even accepted? Mm-hmm. And so, like, literally, like, we just kind of banded together and we shared our experience and got through college together. Yeah. You feel me? For the ones that could afford to keep you yeah. stay yeah. in there, yeah. you yep. know? Yep. But other than that, like, it was, it was just an interesting experience. Um, but it was also it was also good to know that I wasn't the only one. And I, I oh gosh, I have stories for days of my. Uh, uh, escapades of race being an issue at my college. But um, aside from that, I think there's other things to talk about. But when you talk about systemic racism and whether or not it exists in America, because there are those who, you know, will say that um, it's not an issue currently. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that was the past. And anyone is, you know, kind of involving systemic racism into a conversation like this, it's, it's relieving the black person, black family of responsibility, especially mm-hmm. in our own communities because of how much damage you do in our own communities. Yeah. And so how is it that you're conflating systemic racism now with your personal college? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So one of the ways that I process racism on a systemic level Let's do a few experiences. Um, some were mine and some were others at the college. But it was one brother who was there. He talked about walking up on this group of white people who were sitting right outside the library. And their first response was, 
something of the effect of being scared of him because he had like you know the hoodie on and all these different things but it stemmed from the fact that it wasn't until they came to this school that they ever saw a black person in real life yeah right and so oh, yeah. if, if they don't know about abilene christian Matter of fact, Micah, my little brother, went there. Mm-hmm. And so he'd say there's times when people would drive by in trucks and just call them in word just yeah. because. Yeah. That's Abilene. Yeah. Like, what's that? Abilene? You made it out. I'm proud of you, black man. Oh, black woman. I'm sorry. Black. <laughs> Wrong button. Wrong button. Wrong button. Go ahead. And so. I'm sorry. I mean, I think about it like this. You know, I was uh, out doing some crazy stuff. A white dude invited me out camping, and that was already a problem. Um, <laughs> hey, yo. But I went, and I remember walking through this section of the trees, and a snake jumped out, and, you know, I jumped back. And then I kept walking, but I was kind of processing the event afterwards, and I was like, I really have zero experiences with snakes. Mm-hmm. You know, I have that time, it was another time in Abilene, there was a snake right on my front porch, and I just kind of had to wait until it left. But all my experience with it is what television has told me, mm. and what people have done, and all of the horrific events that are surrounded snakes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this information. You can switch that to the, what you know about bears. You've never been around a bear, but my first thing is, like, they said, don't show no fear, right? I don't know, like, my brain is just like, <laughs> you know, what did they tell me in this situation? Stand up, make what yourself do I do? It's like, that's a bear, bro. I heard fetal positions, look. Make you just, noise. You just ball up. Fetal? I've heard that several oh, times. Man. I'm like, I don't know. what. You, you learn that you carried away. scouts. You, get carried you become away. a man, you stand up <laughs> to the bear. <laughs> Back. Make yourself big and make noise <laughs> easily. <laughs> oh my gosh! And so, okay, go ahead. So when you process it, well, at least for me, when I process it from that direction, I'm like, if all you know of black people is through black movies, you know, whether it's Boys in the Hood, because that's what they were telling this one brother, BT or BT, and so whatever stereotypes come with that. And then you can have this other end of black people who is like LeBron James, right? And so your whole, you literally have never met a black person. You've never seen them. You only see about this experience that they have on TV, hmm. right? So even it's weird to even think of like, how can I be racist as a white person if I've never met a black person? Like I never, yes, I might be racist, but like I didn't even get to practice my racism before being called it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> how can I be called racist and I don't even talk to black people? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think about that in terms of what happens at the school. My school was one of the last to integrate because they were fighting against it. You know what I'm saying? And so you have this whole cluster of white people who their religion affirmed their separation from black people. Mm. Like even in my time there, it was either right when I was getting there, right before, it was still a dude on campus who was saying that interracial marriage is a sin. You know what I'm saying? And this, so some of these are just like, there's, there's sins, there are things that are happening out of pure ignorance and lack of exposure. Yeah. 
And so what I'm talking about on the campus is like you have whole theological realms inside of the school that haven't been exposed to black Christianity at its depths. You have whole realms of just black spirituality being absent, let alone just black bodies being absent. Yeah. But what I was trying to call out in the <clears throat> midst of it and how it's systemic is it's still these white men, mostly, and now some white women there, and they're good-hearted and good-natured, I would say. But what do you do when you are teaching your understanding of God and you believe it to be absolutely true and it's based on such a limited exposure with other people's cultures and ways of life? Hmm. But it's taught as if it's universal. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's taught as if this is the way. So much so that if you don't do it our way, we tell you that you are condemned to hell forever. Mm -hmm. Like, it's that level of seriousness. What's, what is, like, one or two things that you can say, like, this is what they taught that said, this is universal for everyone. You know what I'm saying? But it was more of a cultural thing, not a Bible thing. Go with a few things. In our classes, everything that was... It was required across the school for everyone to take the life and teachings of Jesus. Okay. And so all of this was based on the historical method of reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. And this is all based off of the premise that if we understand what the Bible was saying in its original language, then we know what the Bible is saying. And then all we have to do after that is apply a hermeneutic to apply the original intent to today. Mm -hmm. That's it. Right, so that's the foundation of it. For sure. What they don't tell you is, it's a lot they don't tell you. When you get these translations, it's most likely groups of men, probably white men, who are sifting through piles of text and they've created their own formulas of what was probably the most original version based off of their own biases and things of that nature. But they're also, when they translate these things into English, it also includes their biases and how they translate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there is no such thing as a group of people who are reading an original text and understanding its original meaning. Everybody is taking a text and they interpret it through their own culture. But when white people do it, since they believe that they can be objective, they actually teach you historical readings of the Bible and they don't say this is white theology or a white translation or to be more specific, it is a Midwest or Southern translation or perspective of the Bible rooted the, through these particular experiences that go through Martin Luther and Europe and all these specific things that are layered and we're presenting it to you as if this is actually God's word when it's really filtered through all the experiences of our people up until this time. Mm -hmm. Because there's no such thing as interpreting something and being your experience being completely devoid of that interpretation. Because mm. I've actually, it's funny because I've heard people talk about black theology. Mm -hmm. I've heard people talk about Asian theology. I've never heard anybody say anything about white theology. White theology. I've only heard theology. That's white theology. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Mm. Well, I guess it being where in we're so, at in a stand. Some like, case, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just in, in aspect of just like, hey, we're in America. Um, that's interesting. I, I'd, I'd have to think more on that um, and ascribing that directly to white people. 
but I know for a fact um, that when it comes to visually how the Christ is portrayed mm. in places that are so intentfully and passionately proclaiming apologetic mm. and historicity, yeah. I'm like, man, why are the disciples old? And why is the Savior not, as people say, at least Middle Eastern? Yeah. You know, it's like it's like we're still using the same depiction they've been using for uh, millennia now. Yeah. And it's like this just one on a million centuries now. And I'm like, that. it's interesting to know that even where it's hailed at, like, I, I can't find a single apologetic book. Now, mind you, all the books, information, fire. Yeah. But when they talk about like the imagery they use, they choose to use European yeah. origin of images. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, this is, it's just interesting. In the, even so, these are the books they were selling. Yeah. You know, and um, I learned from, uh, you know, a, a, a white woman, the historicity of yeah. Christianity in Africa. And she's like, nah, y'all, nah, the, the information is deep. And so she's sending me books on books on books of Ethiopians mm -hmm. and like yeah. how yep. literally like the depictions of the Christ look like them. Yeah. You know, and, and even in Asia, yep. the pictures of the Christ look like them. Yep. You know, because there's nothing wrong with telling a story to relate to the people that are in front of you. Mm. That's what we do in hip hop anyways. Yeah. It's like, yo, like I'm telling you the narrative of Christ in a way you'll hear it and understand it. Yeah. That's where, where, that's art. Yeah. It's one thing to call something art. But when you start calling something history, that's where I have a problem. Yeah. Cause like, don't label this and slap this on a book. Cause then I got to take this same book and then go do apologetics. And these niggas on the streets like, yeah, Show me that book again. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. And I'm like, man, you know, you yeah. got me there. But, hey, but listen to information, though. You know? Yeah. It's, 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 so it's tough. It's tough when yeah. the, the presentation of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, that's why. That's why. So when it came to you going to jail, what was your emotions? Like after, because you, you, you led it up to the point where um, you were being arrested. But mm. you get arrested. Mm. Was that even a thought of yours? Like, I could be in jail tonight when you, when you, when you, when you put on the... The cross and the... I thought it was a small probability. Um, like, I... At the time, I was a lead minister, right? So, I'm flying out there to speak because they invited me to speak at the summit. So, I'm speaking Friday. Um, I'm supposed to be in a flight Saturday because I got to preach on Sunday. And I'm sitting in in handcuffs, you know what I'm saying? So... Um, definitely was not expecting, expecting that, but it was, I mean, it's Abilene, Texas. So. And then even afterwards, you said to even get the charges dropped was like, mm. were what frustrating. Was, what were the charges? Like, what did they say that you did? <laughs> uh, criminal trespassing. Yeah. Criminal? Yeah. But you were there for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Trespass, that means you're somewhere that, that you're, you're not, not supposed, supposed to be. To be. Yeah. But you were supposed to be there. But you was, yeah. you got invited there. I was invited to come teach. Yeah. Okay. No. And you was teaching. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm pushing the wrong buttons. All you the really time. did. Oh, my God. oh that's warning. Nice. Warning. That's warning. Two. Warning. I'm double buttoning. That that's my last button all night. Two, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, yeah. Let's get right to it, man. You know, I just, I just before we even start this, I just want to say I, I really do hate like black stereotypes you know mm. what i'm saying especially when it comes to like people talking about like we, we stay up late and stuff like that yeah especially we're a podcast we're very you know what i'm saying crucial about time and starting on time yeah and we've never started late 
And so when 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 people wow. say these things, yeah, it just wow, yeah, it's crazy. It hurts. Man. It hurts. You know what I'm saying? Oh man, wow. Uh, I can't get behind that one. Uh, <laughs> hey y'all, welcome to the smoke session. <laughs> I can't get behind that. This is kind. It's the subject of the, oh my god. This is part of the podcast. We invite the live studio audience to come in with the questions, comments, concerns, or the smoke. But be careful because we keep a gas. Oh gosh! Yeah. Gas mask. I'm yeah. done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But anybody from a live studio audience, you know what I'm saying? Shout, first of all, live, make some noise, live studio audience. You know what I'm saying? Hootie hoo. Yeah, yeah. Know that we're here to have conversation. You know what I'm saying? And I, I do appreciate everybody pulling up. I know some conversations like these are just uncomfortable. You know, but I feel like uh, change happens with uh, sacrifice. Uh, and just uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortability, you know, it takes some stretching in order to grow. So, talk to me, audience. What you got? Questions, comments, concerns, or smoke? No smoke. Okay. <laughs> I just have questions. Okay. Okay. So, background: did college ministry at Texas Tech University. Graduated from Texas Tech. Okay. Started a. Uh, an impact movement on the campus. And if you know okay. anything about impact, it's a college ministry that reaches black students. Um, but I was a part of crew first, which crew is massive. And I had my whole Bible study turn on me when I started impact. Cause I couldn't understand why we all couldn't be together, even though I was the only black person in the ministry. Yeah. Um, that being said, did <laughs> you, do you have resentment towards Abilene Christian? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's real. Mm. Do you find yourself trying to work through that at all? I mean, I feel like this is part of it. I don't have any resentment towards individuals, mm -hmm. right? Or groups? I mean, if groups take on a, a spirit of their own, right? And so when I'm coming at a group, this is... It might be a little weird to say, but the way that I understand when Ephesians 6 talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities and things of that nature, that there's something about when groups of it, when groups collect together or institutionalize, that a certain spirit forms around that group. And so when I think about Abilene Christian and I think about white supremacy, white supremacy or norm, white normativity, I think about that as the spirit that I carry uh, resentment for and that I'm uh, actively doing justice work against. But the individuals there, they're just, they're victims of the programming, right? They're the same people who heard that the snakes were all gonna kill them and so they jump before the snake even does anything. And so they all have this programming about black people in them that they're still unlearning. And so I don't hold them responsible for any of that. Mm. Uh, but the institution itself, yeah, I have resentment mm. for it. Yeah, that's that's the definition of something that's systemic, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you're not holding them. What? what Individuals, you, right? Yeah, yeah. But even I, I just feel like there there should be like a level of accountability, though. For sure. I mean, college students are going to be college students. F brains are not fully developed. There's ignorance attached. 
but when do we come to an age of accountability where we start to question? And I know that requires a great deal of self-awareness that most adults do not have. But we go, we go to college to ask questions, yeah. literally. So when do we start asking people to ask questions? Look, okay, so I remember I started hanging out with Christians in Bible college, and it was the weirdest thing to them that I had a lot of friends that were non-believers. Imagine a Christian being a friend of sinners. And so it's funny. When you see somebody's in the wrong, there's a few things you can do. And I think there's other ways to hold somebody accountable. And I, I honestly believe that that is the purpose of light. And when I see the scripture, let your light so shine before men, it doesn't say on them. My job isn't to always expose. It's just to, just to be present. And so as I'm around non-believers, it's just a metaphor I'm using. As I'm around non-believers, I never have to tell you you're wrong. I just want to live right around you. Right. And so by me living right around you and then you start having and then you then you start hearing me talk about things like this. And I've had like my white friends, you know, whether they be affluent or even like peer level. Right. They're just like. But street like reparations. Like, yeah, absolutely. Run the check. And it's even it's weird because like after all that we've already done now, it's like, okay, there's this aspect about you I don't understand. Oh, I love justice because I'm like, I have the heart of my father. I love, I love restoration, right? And so for me, I, I'm able to hold people accountable without having to do it aggressively because people rarely respond in a way that gets you your goal of change and repentance. It's goodness that leads men to repentance. And now mind you, this is not me even relieving the responsibility of putting down a hammer and just saying, hey fam, you off, right? I think for groups, what he did, that's perfect. But notice how he handled individuals. And so I think it's, it's the goal is to be around individuals so they can follow you, so they can see you, and you can be light around them. And when light gets together, it amplifies, right? And even if one's flickering and dim, you won't even notice it because of what the other light's doing. And so it's just, I think it's just to be present, right? Um, but I definitely understand what you're saying. There's, you got to call niggas out. I mean, I wasn't trying to take away, because I know it has to be done delicately, especially if you're trying to build relationships yeah. with others. Like I said, like context, I was, in, I was the only black person in an all-white ministry who decided I wanted to reach people who look like me, and my whole Bible study turned on me because they yeah. couldn't understand why we couldn't be together. Like, um, I'm not... Come, I'm, I'm coming, like, Lubbock is, like, you know, just a couple hours up the road from Abilene. Most of the kids in my crew minister either from Abilene or uh, Mid Midland or Albuquerque, weird group yeah. of mix. But that, that was where they were from. Um, so I know what kind of yeah. people you were encountering because yeah. I, um, I had to, 
I didn't even know how bad I got burned until afterwards the Lord had to reveal it. And me and my best friend started praying that the Lord would heal it. Wow. Um, so even I had to start asking questions. Mm-hmm. And now I think back on that same group who I did ministry with for four years. And I wonder if any change has come in light of all the things that our country has gone through and is currently going through. I mean, I had a guy show up for Halloween in blackface. He decided to be Tiger Woods and paint his whole body black. And so yep. I called him out. on. I, I messaged him on Facebook and was like, hey, like this was a really bad idea. And if anybody else on campus would have saw you, you would have had major problems. But it wasn't until 2016, the summer of 2016, when all this stuff happened, that he reached out and was like, I didn't realize race relations in our country was so bad. Tiger Woods, though, he light skinned. Why would this, <laughs> We all look alike. Did you? Yeah. Black face on light. That's kind of crazy. Look. Yeah. It's just black. That's all. This is. <laughs> now you. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if you're watching, bro. That's, yeah. To me, that's kind of funny. It's it, like, is. Man, it's it, like, is. it is. It is. But I just. I just wonder, like, how how do you work through, especially since I used to work at the jail, so I know how in my church used to have people come and get their records expunged. I know how difficult that process is for mm. anybody. Mm. Um, even worse, if you're poor without an ID, like, yeah. yep. it, and then, like, were you, did you go through the bond system? Did you, like, yeah. did you pay the full cash? Because if you went through the bond system, then they took advantage of you in so many ways that you didn't even realize mm. Um, cause all they see you as is a black person. They don't even see you as a whole person and they don't treat you like that when you come to jail. Mm-hmm. You said it all. <laughs> oh, anyway, so, uh, good question. Uh, does systemic racism exist in America today? I fully believe yes. Yeah, okay. And that's because I've worked at a jail and I'm in the education system. Mm. Oh, currently. Wow. Well, the two most impactful <laughs> places getting hit right now by it in, in the- <clears throat> I was about to say, I think uh, when I've heard people who disagree with systemic racism, one of the things I've heard was because you don't see, oh, like black people can't go here anymore written down anywhere that lets us know there's no more systemic racism. And I was just like, yeah, I think it goes a little bit past just the verbiage itself. But that's one of the things I continue. There's some verbiage that actually expose it, too, though. What? It'll it'll say it says no black people somewhere. Or, well, they use different words. They find way they they, they find different ways to oh, use I, the word black. Oh, I know for a fact that's the case. But yeah. because it doesn't say black yeah. man or black woman, black children, we're good. We're in a good space. So that's just one of the reasons I've just, I've just heard for people to say not. There's no systemic racism. So, there are currently two immigrants running for president on the GOP side. Who are usually who are using black stereotypes as their way to appeal to the GOP so that they can get the nominations to be elected? Mm-hmm. Who I know not to vote for? Who this? Facts. Who Talk this? to them. Drop names. Please. I want to know names. Name drop. Two now. immigrants. Let's get it. One is an Indian man. I think his name is Vivrick. And um, one you don't even know that he's from South America. He he looks like a white man. Um, what is his last name though? I can't think of it right now. I just read about him yesterday, and I was like, that's what you said? He's in Ohio. Mm-hmm. 
Look, so you gotta track. You gotta check people track records. The only person that I know that was actually real about that was Bernie Sanders. Niggas was getting arrested at like twenty some years old at the protest with black. Like that man been about it since he was a jit. So Indeed. everybody yeah. else, they just started right. Look, two days even, ago. Even for me, bro, I don't even like, bro. I I, I could care less how, like if. If somebody was about joining in and doing what they could to reform the system and then a, a, a picture surfaces of them on the other side of the spectrum in race relations in the 60s, mm-hmm. the amount of, like, not grace that comes. I'm, like, I'm, just, I'm just like, man, like, I, I, I recognize your past, yeah. but I honor your present. For sure. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Like, bro, they tried to cancel Jerry Jones, bro. My man was just in the back just chilling. You know, my man was 13. First of all, whoever there actually was, did that research and found and, and made a connection between 12, 13-year-old Jerry Jones, it was like, And how old is he now? Like 80-something? Bro, Jerry is, Jerry, oh, you know bro. what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure he's had like a few different heart transplants and, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got a new heart. Knee replacements, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but, bro, it's Jerry, bro. He likes to, he likes to bro. It's just interesting how people... It, within our cancel culture, we we find reasons to discredit people constantly, yeah. and I, I feel like because people don't want to be discredited or disqualified, they never come forth, they never yeah. speak, and they never speak out. And I'm just like, man, I hate that about this because having uncomfortable conversations it was is what leads to the actual change for sure. Mm-hmm. So for sure, which is which even with that too, I think we need to. Even, and I, I feel like some black people are going, like me saying this, like, but showing a lot more grace to our white brothers and sisters who literally be like, fam, I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah. I believe them. Not all of them, but I do believe that there are some people who are so ignorant to what's going on. Even with us, it's like there's so many things that we don't even know about our own personal histories. You know what I'm saying? So it's like uh, we, we need to be having that door open for those who are legitimately trying to get a better understanding of what's going on, you know? Yeah. Really right. showing grace, really walking with people and being Christ loving as we do this particular thing. Cause at the end of the day too, it's not even about the blackness and whiteness. It is about like, how can I, how can the Lord like reconcile this space that is so broken, you know? Amen. Amen. Who else from the live studio audience? Oh, come on up. You feel me. Where's it at? Where's it at? Um, so I went to I went to a Catholic university um, in Los Angeles, okay. um, which I know is like very different than going to Bible college. But and even I think ca- the goals of Catholic education and Protestant education are different. But we had to take theology courses, and um, to to a certain Catholics have all of these like. Fraternities of priests, our particular fraternity of priests was the Jesuits. And so um, they're big on, like, social justice, Mm -hmm. and they're also big on um, being involved in, like, politics and things like that. And so I guess in their effort to um, educate us in theology while educating us in, I guess, the the social climates that we exist in. Um, our, like I took a course, Social Justice in the Hebrew Bible. So they had, um, they made an effort to try to teach us through yeah. a lens of social justice. And like when we went on, we did mission work. Like I, I did one um, break abroad. And the priests in Chile have like this concept called con pan, which means like with bread, but basically that like if you cannot 
eat with people like in mm. their homes you cannot serve them mm. and so yeah. they mm. like I, I feel like there was a lot of intentionality and I mean there's still a lot to criticize yeah. in this context and other contexts with the university I went to and with Catholics in general but um there was a lot of intentionality surrounding how do you educate um people for the world and for various callings that they might have. So I, I would ask, like, what would you like to specifically, like, if Abilene had met with you as opposed to having you arrested, mm -hmm. like, what sort of action or a different coursework or, like, what specifically would you have, um, like, invited them to consider? That's a great question. So one of the things in my experience of I uh, did a lot of research on different theological groups, whether that's the Catholics and the Jesuits, and uh, more so for me it was on Eastern Orthodox religion or Christian religion. And part of what I learned about theology how do I put this? So we know the, the two greatest commands of Jesus, right? Loving God, loving neighbor. And we know that in Matthew, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on these two, right? So everything is supposed to be read through these two things, almost like a compass or a barometer or an evaluation point of, am I actually practicing this scripture well? And the way that I know that is if it's in line with these two. But... There's another passage, at least for me, in my, the way that I read things. When Jesus is with that lady, um, or actually with a few people, when he breaks the Sabbath to heal somebody. And I find it hilarious every time with Jesus because they come to him and they say, you're not supposed to be doing this on the Sabbath. And he responds saying, well, is it against the law to do something good on the Sabbath? And what he keeps pressing them on is like, if someone's hurting on the Sabbath, you break the Sabbath law to love that person. Because the purpose of the law is not to maintain oppression. The law was actually given to us to heal us or to free us. And whenever people are experiencing the law in such a way that is hurtful to them, you change it so that they can be loved. And so I say that as backdrop for what I would bring to ACU or other private white institutions that have allegiance to the Christian title. Is in and this this is debatable, but this is just how I understand things. I don't know if you guys heard of Howard Thurman. Anybody know? Mm -hmm. So in his book Jesus and the Disinherited, he has this section where he talks about his grandmother, and he says how she used to only he used to read she used to say, "Come and read the Bible to me." And he would read all different types of passages, but she did not want him reading anything from Paul because she was a slave. And she said, this guy's words kept being used against me. I don't want to hear anything he's written wow. other than 1 Corinthians 13, right? And so there's, and you can look at other black enslaved people Black people have a particular way of reading the Bible that goes back to slave times because enslaved people both knew that there's something powerful here. Mm -hmm. But they also knew that these white people were using it for evil. 
And so they talk about, if you read Kelly Brown Douglas um, and Dolores Williams, they talk about this thing called the black biblical tradition, which is we got our hands on the Bible and we said, we're going to gravitate to the passages that affirm us. So we got David and Goliath. We got the Hebrew boys. We got the compassion of Jesus. We got the way that Jesus was crucified under a Roman imperial system and how that was, for us, it resonated deeply with lynching and this experience that we have in America. And we gravitated to those texts. But then there were other texts that we said, they just don't matter to us anymore. And so when it got to slaves obey your masters, for black people, it was like that text wasn't even in the Bible no more. Because for us, we said, when a law is harming us, that is against the will of God. And so we left those things out. And so I I say that because this is actually the natural way that all theology works, and this is why it needs to have a corrective. White people took the Bible and they used it to affirm their own identity. But it was inside of a vortex where black people were supposed to be less than. And so they created an entire theology, an entire system, ways of translating and everything like that that currently support the system that's still here. And so I would have invited the school to sit back and say, what are the ways that your current theology is hurting people? And how are you spending all of the time breaking your current theological format so that those people stop hurting? Because that's the very thing that Jesus calls us to do. It's not a commitment to the Bible or to teachings at the expense of humans. And so it would have called for a deep reevaluation of how the program is being taught. It would have called for a deep evaluation of its racial history and how it's harmed people. There's people, because I come from a, a denomination, it's called the Church of Christ. Legit, I mean, y'all may have the same things um, because fundamentalist places tend to go like this, like the Reformed tradition, but believing everybody outside of this tradition is going to hell, right? And so we had this whole thing where black people were forced to get baptized into this denomination for various reasons, whether it's economic or other reasons, but then they can't actually go to these schools because these schools are segregated and they don't accept black people. So all the white people create the theology The black people have to take it, but they can't actually go to the spaces to be a part of the core of how that's even formed. And so when you have a history that goes back 150 years of that, and your commentators are through that, and your interpretations are through that, it calls for a deep social reckoning, theological reckoning, spiritual reckoning that says, how are we actually integrating a new way of doing theology in light of the history of oppression that our theology produced. And I think that's the work that all of these Christian institutions and predominantly white churches need to be doing, if that makes sense. And I just want to add, you didn't ask me, but as another person who works in education, particularly education data analysis, systemic racism definitely exists. Oh, wow, definitely. Oh, my. So in general, I'll start by, I guess, defining systemic racism to some extent. 
Um, so, because like you said, people bring up the argument, well, there aren't always laws that specifically exclude black people or indigenous people or whatever groups. But laws are not the only element of a system. Mm -hmm. So if you see, like, very loosely in society, we have a system wherein you are born and you are formally educated in, um, formally and informally educated in necessary information and customs for the society that you exist in. Then you go on to have some sort of autonomy over your contribution to that society. Mm -hmm. If we see that that system produces or there are trends in outcomes, then those trends are systemic. The system somehow, whether individual people are conscious about their contribution to it, that system is producing certain trends and outcomes. And so in a larger sense, we see that the trends and outcome for education is that indigenous students and black students, um, and in many ways, I'll say, emergent bilingual students, as well as Hispanic students, which of course, like there's overlap and, and divergence between those two groups, but we're in Texas, so emergent bilingual is often um, Hispanic, Latine, here. But um, we see that their education outcomes differ from their white counterparts, and particularly in America, white and Asian counterparts. Um, we also know that in America, um, money matters. So the, your economics determine a lot of your outcomes. They determine what schools you can go to. They determine how much money the schools have because the uh, schools um, are, the public schools are funded based off of property taxes. And so if you live in an area where the property tax revenue is low, um, then you're more likely to go to an underfunded school. Because race and economic status have been intertwined in America because of systemic disenfranchisement of black people. So this is slavery, this is Jim Crow, this is redlining, this is predatory lending, this is health inequities, and um, the, like the, the predatory nature of the healthcare field. Black people are more likely to be poor, so then they're more likely to be undereducated. Now once you get to the school, um, so okay, your school has fewer resources, but theoretically, maybe you could still get an education if, if the, I guess the outside experiences that you're coming in with, the school was equipped to deal with. So if you're more likely to be poor, you're more likely to have experienced trauma. You're more likely to experience food insecurity. You're more likely to experience um, lack of access to um, healthcare. Your parents are more likely to work and have less time to even, um, partner with the school, or certainly partner with them in the traditional ways that the schools expect to be partnered with. Um, and so that's going to affect your experience of education, your experience of advocacy, like because your parents don't have the tools to advocate for you in the same way, the way that the school responds to. Um, and then on a very micro level, uh, you have teachers and administrators that uh, have cultural barriers, even sometimes when they're black, because class, um, in America we have this like dance between class and race. So even sometimes when teachers are black, they're more likely to um, experience students in poverty who are predominantly black as problems. So then you get special education labels, uh, which in this country mean you, you're not gonna get educated. You know? mm -hmm. um, you're more likely to uh, experience disciplinary measures that remove you from the classroom. So in school suspensions, out of school suspensions, or being kicked out of class. 
Um, and so this is backed up by statistics, so much so that uh, state accountability measures, so the state makes public schools take tests, and then they rate public schools, this is really distilled, but largely based on the performances on those tests. In high school, it's also based on college career and military readiness. Um, the state is so aware of these disparities that um, in under previous evaluation models, it just changed this year, uh, the minimum threshold of like passing grades that you have to hit for like different student groups, like these racial student groups, was lower for black students, lower for Hispanic students compared to white students. So that you could be an A-rated school, but still be... Um, underperforming. Exactly, academic. underperforming in certain areas. Academic. And this is an acknowledgement of the difficulty of educating these students. Um, so it's meant to give the schools a break, so to speak. I mean, I'm not going to speak for TA, but it, this, like, it feels as though the thinking is if it's harder to educate these students or we see these like systemic issues, then you shouldn't have to necessarily push them up to the same level. So that's one example of actual laws that do name race. But, um, yeah. and then just, I'll wrap it up, but this year those accountability measures have been slightly changed. So you have these targets for uh, whatever the two lowest performing student groups in your, uh, your campus and district would be. So it's not necessarily, like they don't name the student groups like they did before. But racially. Racially, it's right. Just Groups. Yes, it's just groups. And there are more groups. Like I said, there's emergent bilingual, which is students who enter the school system um, without a, or whose home language is a language other than English. Um, and then there's, of course, like special education. Does Ebonics count? <laughs> Actually, huh? the law, listen, listen, listen. The law has not, the law has not caught up with scholarship on Ebonics. But if you, but, but, so, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly, and you'll often, yeah, you'll often hear, and when you go to, because uh, when I was a teacher, I taught bilingual education for several years, you, when you go to trainings that train you to educate emergent bilinguals, you'll often hear, these are strategies we should be using for all students, because all students are acquiring English, specifically academic English, um, in the context of school. Wow, that's crazy. Um, I've always called myself bilingual. You know what I'm saying? Because oh I know Ebon I'm, I'm I'm being dead serious. If I can speak a language, somebody else, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's like yeah. Well, you know, the difference between a dialect and a language, it's a it's their political definitions. Oh, so okay. like for instance, how we say that like Portuguese and Spanish and Italian, at some point we decided to make them different languages, which has a lot to do with, of course, like the history of those becoming different countries, but they all originated as like Latin, just Latin. dialects of Latin. Um, or the reason why some like in Africa and the Caribbean, some of their languages are called like Patois or Creole, which mm -hmm. has a connotation of being a dialect, not a language. But th those are political Political, uh, political labels. Wow. wow, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Indeed, indeed. Did that answer the question at all? Just, well, present the question? For sure, for sure. Great question, by the way. Great question. Um, we got answers, in, maybe? I'm Petra. Well, I'm a physical therapist, so it's funny that you were talking about, like, I guess the education side of everything, because I can also speak on systemic racism as like the healthcare side. Right, but, yeah. So there's like so many things that like 
healthcare, like you can see in the stats of how like just people of color, specifically black people, are not as supported. Um, like for one, the risk of death for like black women is four times higher than for like white women. That's just mm-hmm. like the basis for a lot of people know that. Yeah. Also, um, in regards to like kidney function and like transplants for kidneys, like black individuals are less likely to get transplants because the percentage of like kidney function is way higher for like black individuals than white individuals. And it's based on this one study that they did that showed like some black people sometimes had a higher percentage of kidney function. So they started just having people, basically they just made it. So it's very hard for black people to be able to get transplants for kidneys now versus like, cause we got good kidneys. Yeah. It was one study and it was like inaccurate, but yes, literally one study. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well, if their kidney function is like 20 and like a white person's is 25, the white person gets like the kidney transplant. Um, also in regards, if y'all know, like, um, what is it called? Like pressure sores. Oftentimes if people are like unable to get out of bed, they'll like develop pressure sores. And commonly it's taught in school about like how to look into pressure sores. But it's specifically taught in a way where it accommodates white people and white skin. So when I was a physical therapist, they were literally teaching our class, like how to detect pressure sores for our patients. And I raised my hand like, what do you do for black people? Because they were like, oh, you'll like notice the skin changes like this and a little like this. And the professor was like, I'll have to look into that. Yes, literally, she's like, I'll have to look into that. Like they had nothing like specifically for like melanated skin. And later on, like I looked it up personally and it showed that black people are more likely to get pressure sores in hospitals and get infections and like risk of death, things of that nature. Um, in addition, just like some of the history, like the father of gynecology literally tested or did like procedures on black slaves without anesthesia, even though they had anesthesia and they still respect him. They still have statues of him, all these things. So there's like so many things like in the system that have been like set up against black people, black people in like the healthcare field. So in that system, I see it a lot as well. Um, and the opioid crisis, look, it just keep going. The opioid crisis, black people miss the opioid crisis because racism. All these white people were getting prescribed opioids and like doctors were like, oh, we're not gonna give them to like our black patients because they're gonna be users and addicted. And lo and behold, so now like the opioid crisis that like hit, you know, several years ago or whatever, it mainly hit Caucasian counterparts. There's that about systemic racism. But my two questions, my two questions, um, I really commend you for that whole thing on your campus. Cause like for me, I couldn't be out there doing that stuff. So I kind of want to just know, like, how did you cultivate that idea of just, yeah, going there and doing that? There we go. Yeah, thank you for that question. So it was, I was at a a contemplative retreat through my alma mater, which was ministers getting together. We do some uh, contemplative practices uh, that we learn um, in some ways from the Jesuits, at least that time. And so we're spending time in silence and in prayer and just time for self-reflection. And uh, this one professor from the school was there. And I love him, so I, don't, I hope he doesn't hear this. But um, he was talking about what does it mean to raise your children? Because he was spent a lot of years in the youth ministry. Um, and he talked about introducing spiritual disciplines to your children. 
And what he showed us as an analogy uh, was a, a wood carving. And his whole point was you can carve your kids to be what you want them to be. And everyone in the room, except for me and a close friend of mine, we were just kind of like, it was bizarre to us. Everyone was just kind of taking notes on it. Um, but it was bizarre for me sitting in there because I was like, a lot of times when I'm in these spaces, it's giving me windows into how white people think. Um, especially when it's, because he's a, a kind-hearted man, he's just a really genuine, sincere person. And so it was just a reflection of, like, he believes that he can just carve his kids to be what he wants them to be. With spirituality, with theology, right? So he has an intention, and he's like, if I just stay on this map, this is how they're going to come out on the other side. And I, I don't know if it's how I was raised just in my home, but my, my mom is a deep respecter of, I mean, I'm one of seven. So all of us are just different. And she's gotten to a place in her parenting where she's like, I respect each of you guys' unique unfolding in the world. Like, I'm here to create this safe space for you full of love, to give you what I learned from spirituality, but you take this in the way that God is calling you to take this because I'm not in your body having your experience of the world. And so there's a level of mutuality of, I'm giving you the best that I have, but I understand that you're having a different experience than me. And so you have to do the best that you have with the best that I have to give you. And so that, to me, white theology and white institutions come from this space of we can just carve you to be what we want you to be, whether that's colonialism, whether that's the enslaved thing. And so as I'm sitting here at this contemplative retreat, for me, this was the cream of the crop of my circle. I'm like, these are, they, they teach us to sit in silence because the goal of silence is to listen to the voice of God and from that space to develop a way of being in the world that is not reactive. And so their hope was if we can have ministers that do not react to the things that are going on in the times, then we can produce better ministers. And so I'm at the space that's supposed to be producing the best ministers for our space. And in this space, it's still this underlying thing of, of whiteness that believes that it can carve human beings to be what they want it to be, essentially like God. And so I was just sitting in silence after that experience and after being in that space. And that's when I felt like the spirit moving me to saying, okay, these Hebrew prophets that you learned about, how did they speak to the people who claimed to be speaking on behalf of God? And how did they call them to accountability? And oftentimes you look at the prophets, they do it through this most bizarre, provocative, sometimes body art, laying outside naked and all these types of things where you're like, this isn't the Bible. But they're doing these things and they're challenging kings and they're challenging institutions and they're calling them to rethink and to call them back 
to. I mean, that's why you have John the Baptist out here with camel hair and eating weird stuff because he's this prophet in the wilderness that is starting a renewal movement inside of Israel because he felt like they've gone astray. And so it was just kind of like, I mean, I don't feel like I'm really good at doing this Jesus thing, but this is what's coming up in my imagination. And so for me, it was like, how do I do something that's going to cause a conversation because I believe these individuals are innocent, um, but also put pressure on the institution because of its claim to Christianity, right? I have a, a specific thing about if you're just a private white institution that makes no claims to God or the divine, it's not, I, I mean, I still think reparations, you need to run the check. But it's different for me when you are claiming that you are in touch with the divine. Right? This is the most intimate sectors of human existence. And you've inserted whiteness into that space and you defend whiteness in that space and you allow people to experience harm from whiteness in that space. So there's a serious reckoning that has happened here. And so the protest was rooted in, well, how do prophets call the people of God back to what they're supposed to be doing? And so that's how it was formulated. Mm. Um, second question. So if systemic racism exists, which it does, but if systemic racism exists for all three of y'all to answer, what would y'all say is the best way to break down that system in your own perspective and who is responsible? Because I know I have a lot of black friends who like see setups where people are ignorant and they're like, that's on them. Like they can look, look things up. They can find a book. <laughs> I'll say y'all know me in short um I think because we're we're ambassadors of reconciliation as the church just as a whole regardless of our colors you know what I'm saying um and I think as the church man he has called us to step into these spaces um and speak truth into and to speak life into um so exactly how it would go um, I think it kind of starts in, in in the spaces that you're already kind of in, you know what I'm saying, as believers. Like, where are you now, right? And do you see these things happening? And if you see these things happening, how in this particular area, man, how is the Holy Spirit going to use me to kind of, I, in a sense, reconcile or bring some friction to this area for it to be brought out? You know what I'm saying? Um, I think a lot of times we allow these, we see these things, we say nothing. You know, because we don't want the smoke, right? Or we don't want any type of, I don't know, we don't want any any issues or whatnot. But I think with those things, it's like, man, we ought to be going in those spaces and making war against this evil that actually takes place. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's it starts with the church. Um, they say it all the time. The most segregated place is the is the church itself, right? Like we got our own issues. On Sunday, yeah. You know what I'm saying? On Sundays, right? Uh, we have our own issues, so I feel like, again, if we are the ones who are to be reconciliation, um, ambassadors of reconciliation, right, um, all these areas are something we, we need to be touching on, so. Um, bro, uh, can you cue up that video I sent you, bro, on your phone? Um, as he's queuing that up, I think 
what I've learned to do is to be lovingly present for the opportunity to be critically direct. You take criticism from people that are close to you, but are we willing to get close to people? And so for me, I get criticized often from people in my own community because of the work I do with people that don't look like me. Because they view someone based off of how they look as an enemy. And I'm like, how are you making the spirit of something and then connecting it to the physicality of someone and then I'm affirming them as an enemy? And I was like, that's not biblical. It's actually anti-Christ and, her and heretical. And for me, it is doing the not so hard work on the front end, but the loving work on the, on the front end so that you can do the hard work on the back end. So in preparation for this conversation this entire week, I've just been calling like my friends who I believe have strong conservative values, and I just simply ask them three questions. I say, hey, um, do you believe the justice system is just? Most of them said yes. Then I said, do you believe that systemic racism exists in the world or, or America today and active? They said no. And then I simply responded with the third question and said, well, understanding that there's 6.5% African-American men in this community of the USA, yet we make up 40.2% of the prisons, does that now make the black man the most dangerous person in America? Because how is it that some group of people that make up such a minority are making up such a major majority of prisons. Are we the most dangerous people in America? And to my surprise, I had an answer of yes. That makes sense if we're speaking about statistics. And so I see a disconnect of knowledge and what the scriptures and Ecclesiastes call what? Understanding and wisdom. Because you can have the facts and the stats and the data, but not understand what you're looking at. Because yeah. for that person, it made sense that, well, I've already said the system is just. So, well, yeah, absolutely. So more so often than not, when someone is criminalized, more so often than not, then it makes sense that they're in a place where criminals go. And I've already said that systemic racism doesn't exist, so I can't blame a system on the fact that a minority of people are making up a majority of the place where the worst people go. And so it logically makes sense in their mind to speak out and say something that I concluded to be racist, yeah. that black people are just dangerous. And so the presence of a black person can cause someone to knock on the wrong door and have them shot. So for me, understanding that and then simply just responding, as I'm having that conversation, I'm not being critical, I'm not being mm -hmm. aggressive. I'm just saying, okay, man, that's an interesting take you have there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I fully disagree. Because the issue is people don't understand the history of policing and why policing even exists. It was because of race. Mm. You know, and so if policing exists because of race and the numbers have always been drastically in this place, it is predominantly African 
American faces that fill them up. Why hasn't it changed? It looks like a certain group of people are being targeted. And then when you start looking at the 13th Amendment and it says slavery is illegal unless someone commits a crime. And that is something that is written down that doesn't say black, but it means black. Because how else will you get free labor? You criminalize people. And the issue is, if we look at crime as the first thing and say, well, criminals do crime, my thing is, I don't believe black people, black men are the worst people on the earth, on, 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 on the, in the U.S. I don't believe so. You know, maybe I'm biased. Who knows? <laughs> right? But here's what I do believe. I do believe that if I wanted to go to Asian communities and find crime, I'd be able to. If I wanted to go to white communities and find crime, because, you know, cocaine is a lesser crime than that of crack. Why is that? Race. That is systemic. And so if I, how come, how come we don't see commonly cocaine busts for people that are just driving in their cars in certain communities where we know what's happening and being sold at? Why? Because they're not being policed in the same level. Now, mind you, if you're going to police every other community like you're policing the black communities and urban communities, cool. At least we're all even. But don't police a certain community at a high level. Get the results of having six point. The statistic is one, one third of all of black children will end up in prison or go, end up going to prison at one point in time in their life. Third. That doesn't make sense. So either my people are just bad at nature or there's a system that's affecting us. And I didn't mean to spend so much time on that. But essentially, mm -hmm. I'm passionate because at the end of the day, I think in order for me to even have a conversation like that with someone, I got I to gotta have a prior loving experience with them. And I'm willing to put the work in to love people on the front end so I can have hard conversations on the back end. Play this video. Trying to yeah. This is a pastor. That's why we get called. Well, you're a Christian nationalist. You want, you want the kingdom to be the government. Yes. You want God to come and overtake the government. Yes. You want Christians to be the only ones. That, yes, we do. <laughs> we wouldn't be a disciple of Jesus if we didn't believe that. <laughs> we want God to be in control of everything. We want believers to be the ones writing the laws. Yes, guilty as charged. That's why we get called. Well, you're a Christian nationalist. You want. <laughs> and it's okay. When I saw that clip, I saw a conversation happening. And I kind of in, 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 um, <clears throat> involved myself in a conversation because it was a good conversation. I was like, man, so what's wrong with Christians being the ones that are writing laws? It's like, I'm for this. And I'm like, that's interesting. Which Christians are you going to pick to write the laws? The Catholics, you ain't doing that. Presbyterians, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, Southern Baptists, the Blacks, Christians, because even in Christianity, we have sex mm -hmm. groups, and is it that you're wanting Christians to write the laws, or you're wanting what I would call Republicans, Republican evangelicals to write the laws? Patriotism. 
You know what I'm saying? Because if it's Christians writing the laws, I think we'll end up with the same result. It's just now we're going to have a people group to blame. Mm. Because there are Christians out there that are what people call left and far left. And there are Christians out there that sit in the middle. There are Christians out there that sit in the right and the far right, etc. And so for me, I'm like, man, even that thought to just say publicly and openly, I'm a Christian nationalist. I want, like, for me, I understand theocracy, obviously. You know, like God at the head. Absolutely. That was the Hebrew community. But I don't think that Jesus was walking around in Rome saying, I want to rewrite your laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. render to Caesar, not surrender to Caesar. Yeah. So at the end of the day, our call is to be light yeah. in the midst of the darkness. We're not trying to rewrite the laws of a place that isn't a place of where God has set up camp. Yeah. It's we're bringing wherever we're at mm-hmm. is now holy ground. Because we are his temple, and that temple should be able to step anywhere and exert authority, whether or not I have control. Yeah. So, That's good. It's interesting. That's good. Let me me ask this, too, and this is is a question for you, Blue. Um, How do you think, how do you fight off, if any, your biases towards the scriptures. What do you mean? So, for instance, like, kind of like what you said earlier, right? So we all have a, a theology of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the black theology. Uh, appreciate y'all. Uh, you got Asian theology, uh, white theology, all these different things can, that can definitely, like, put in their culture, their perspective inside mm-hmm. the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it can be same for groups as well as individuals, right? Um like, so for you, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I, I'm asking this question because I didn't even thought about it myself. Like, what have I potentially even put in to the scriptures? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So what would you say, how do you fight that, if if any? Yeah. Hmm. So I've, I've had to sit with that question a lot over the years. Um, because at least what I've learned from white supremacy is that whiteness is rooted in the belief that they can actually remove their bias, right? Because whiteness is the belief that I can actually remove my culture and become a color, right? And so that's, that's what I was going with, with earlier with the whole historical method. White people created a way of reading that they thought that they could actually stop being who they were and read something for what it is, which is impossible. If we think about it in the sense of just what a translator is doing in a culture. My wife's from Haiti. Her family has this phrase called, uh, it's this Wap Con George, and I'm butchering it. But basically, we could tell her parents, like, yeah, we're about to, I don't know, something that sounds kind of edgy for them. It could be like we're getting tattoos or something. And they'll be like, you know, Wap Con George. And I asked my wife what that means. And the literal meaning of that is, you will know George. But what the idiom means is, like, y'all better watch out. Like, you dancing with something you don't want to be playing with. As an outsider, how am I supposed to know that that means? (laughs) (laughs) But the more you... George, duh. Yeah, I'm like, (laughs) he must have been tripping. Um, 
And so I say that because the scriptures are actually filled with idioms that are only known to that culture. There's, there's something in Galatians when Paul is talking to the Galatians and he's trying to argue with them about this circumcision thing. And he says to them, I demonstrated before you, before your very eyes, Christ crucified. And scholars can argue about what that means, but they have no idea what it means for Paul to visit a location and how do you visually demonstrate to people Christ crucified when Christ is not there. And so scholars, they don't tell you that they... They wrestle with what that means, and it starts off with what is already in their visualization. Yeah. And so whatever they're visualizing goes into their commentaries. Whatever they're visualizing goes into how they translate. Whatever their culture was, right, there's, um, there's a whole group of people at the conference that I went to, and they were talking about, you guys may have heard this story because it, it's used in different places, but it was a woman who was preaching on the story of David and Bathsheba. And the whole way that it goes is they're teaching on it, and she's teaching on it in Africa, and all of these black women hear the story in Africa, and they end by celebrating Bathsheba. Because all they see is a woman who's navigating a man in power. That a king called her over to his house and said, I want to sleep with you. And you are true, you as a, a woman inside of this society, saying no to that is like a death sentence. And so they're applauding Bathsheba for the way that she still worked the system. Right? The same way that Esther. black women, the same way that Esther did, or black women in enslaved times, worked the system in order to protect their families, protect their well being. And so this culture is reading this story completely different then our emphasis on, you know, maybe filter through veggie tales and all this other stuff that doesn't actually do justice to a woman's experience because it's all filtered through a white male Christian American experience of how to read a text and they think that they're actually removing their bias, but they don't see how by making this all focus on David and David's sin and purity and all of these different things that you've inserted a whole lens onto this that was never even originally there. And so the whole thing for me is, how about we just embrace our biases? And then when we come together, that's what, when I read the Gospels, they all have different biases about how they were looking at Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. doctor's perspective, yeah, collector's perspective. <laughs> and they just lean it. Luke tells you at the beginning, he says, I know other people have written about this, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've gone and done my own research. Mm-hmm. So I'm about to tell you what I think this is. Mm-hmm. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have those that are outside of the canon because other people are doing the same thing. All of them have these either experiences or stories or testimonies they heard about Jesus. And then they lean in. Luke is the one that's big on loving those in poverty or loving those who experience oppression. Matthew is coming after these Pharisees like it's nobody's business. Yeah, mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. And so... When we lean into the biases as an intercultural thing, we have a space to say, like, okay, for some reason that bias is meaningful for you over there. Mm -hmm. Because same thing we learn from history, context ends up determining so many things. That's good, Derek. And so when we lean into our biases, Mm -hmm. when we come into contact with each other, we're like, oh, this white body is having a weird experience of my black body, not because this white body is actually a, a... 
a hateful person. Mm -hmm. But something's going on in your context that is making you experience me like this. Mm -hmm. But if you lean into your bias, we could get right down to the There you go, for sure. To the meat. That's it. But the more that we pull away and try to act like we don't have biases, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not actually what the scripture is doing. Mm -hmm. That's something that white people have taught us to you can actually come into this space and you can read the Bible and just stop being black while you read it. It's impossible. My mama taught me to read this. My black mama. Mm -hmm. My black mama Mm -hmm. who was raised in the nation of Islam and came from a black affirming place. So the way she was reading the Bible was affirming black people. Because she Mm -hmm. came, that was the lens that she was coming from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so everybody has their experience and it determines how they read the text and all these different things. And the beauty of interracial or inter cultural spaces is we get to see how each other is reading and then we get to say how do we compose a collective reading together that Mm -hmm. actually is beneficial and beautiful and healing for our community that's good bro so button we do you know what I'm saying that is what it is come through We'll probably take one more question and we'll wrap it up. So when you were talking about control, you were talking about control, I was, my question formed and then it came to this. So how you're saying everybody has biases. Would you say that system, like systematic racism stems from those that are leaders or that are influential? They have their own biases and now they've normalized it to where those that are followers, people that are seeking and looking for answers, those people observe, absorb that information. And like you're saying, everybody reads it differently. Mm-hmm. So they're absorbing the leaders or the influencers. And like you said, you don't blame those individually. Would you say that's because they just don't know? And they're absorbing from the leaders that are, are biasly reading the context and pushing it out to people that are eager to take it. Now they're falling into it and now they're, they're being a part of the systematic racism and they're not even knowing at this mm-hmm. point. They're just doing. So I, I, I used an example when I was having a conversation with a few people and I said, essentially, because uh, one of them was like, well, that doesn't sound like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a U.S. thing. It sounds like it's a local thing. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about, well, well, this is prisons all throughout the U.S. But I was like, think of it like this. Let's just say... In an organization, the people at the front desk were racially insensitive. It's like, well, that's just just the front desk. I said, well, what if it was every front desk? That means the people hiring are the ones responsible for people, pe- people there. And so for me, I think that it is important and necessary to include the fact that leaders are held at a higher standard. In fact, the priests had a certain sacrifice, I believe it was a bull, you know, for their sin. Because mm-hmm. they are the ones that are held accountable to a higher degree. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it warns us not all in the scriptures to become teachers. Yeah. Because we'll be judged more strictly. And so when you have people that are leading people, and here's, and here's something I've, I've just learned through in life. Not everyone is a great leader. Not everybody's meant to be a leader. And so knowing that there are a lot of followers, Mm. the fact that there are people that will 
either knowingly or unknowingly create systems or create laws that mislead or misdirect people mm. is wicked at heart, which is why I, I feel like even the aspect of like Jesus saying like, yo, anybody who deceives these little children be better than a millstone be hung around in it. Cause like, yo, this is where they're the most vulnerable and you're teaching them in a way that will cause them to experience things and grow up with things that have to unlearn and take longer to unlearn at, because they learned it at a young age. Mm -hmm. That's why it's better for that person to be thrown into a ocean with a millstone. It's like, yo, get them out of here because they're deceiving the children. Yeah. And so I feel like it's, it is important to recognize the fact that, yes, there are people that are like that at the tops. You know, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to actually pinpoint and, and say who sometimes, mm -hmm. but I think it is important to recognize like where the laws are consistent because I don't think the whole system is, is trash. I think that generally speaking, what's written down is good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's like, man, like this, these are put into place for equality. These are put into place for, for these reasons. but the issue is how it, the results yeah, are the it's not results? What you do, it's how you do it. Yeah, are the results conclude? Are, are the results lining up with the words? And I think that more so often than not, based on how we see the the treatment of the black experience and the, and the black experience in America, the results aren't lining up with what's on paper. And the people that are writing it on paper were the leaders. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I think it's important to hold leaders accountable. Okay. So in this case, I would say, like like you just said, it's hard to pinpoint who. So is it easier to say that it's the white man that is being or the center of the influence of systematic racism? Would you say that it's the white man specifically or is it people in general with that belief? Like, for instance, we could have a group of people, we all read the same verse, but we all see something different. Who's to say that just the white man feels that way of, you know, we don't want it that way. We don't want it that way. Because there's some black people that are ashamed of their skin, and they now have taken on a different perspective to where they look at their brother differently, and now they're trying, they're influencing something that, let's just say it's not even original of them. They didn't even get it from a white man. They just felt that way growing up from experiences of how their brothers and their neighbors treated them. Like, they are now racist because of their own personal experience as a black person. So I'm like, is it, is it easy to say that it's the white man that's causing this systematic racism, or is it even our own people, that whole cancel culture that causes it too? Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to talk about the history of America without involving race consistently, um, because it, it, it's, it's literally and still to this day is a struggle. And I think that those who try to discredit the struggle, invalidate the struggle, or, 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 or highlight or over-highlight the struggle with with what the with progress, it's it's completely invalidating those who are in prisons, who are in trotting down school systems, who are have been taken advantage of by the healthcare system, etc. Um, I am not going to blame a color of a group of people, um, because for me, although I think there can be generalizations and there can be groupings, I don't want to allow a grouping to end up be how I view individuals. Because me trying to figure out an individual before I even meet them completely allows me, it, it, it removes my empathy and also how I'm able to even view their experience in light of the gospel. 
Because if I'm now saying, oh, well, I know how white people are treating me and you're one of them. So now you got to prove yourself out of this. I've now taken away grace. I've now taken away understanding. I'm not even taking away conversation. Like, like you're negative until proven neutral. Yeah. Right? And so I, I don't want to place a negative. I'd rather tie it to a spirit. And I think that same spirit is something that I'm even having to deal with with some of my own people. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where I, <laughs> that's really where I was pushing it towards, and yeah. I'm glad you answered it that way because I feel like it's all, like, even the racism in general, it's a spirit-led thing. It's, you, it's like something that people feel in themselves. That they don't understand. Yeah, you know? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So mm -hmm. if, it, if we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, why am I ascribing a particular struggle to a, 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 a flesh of people? It doesn't make any sense. That's good. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was all. I, that was really my point. When you started talking about biases, you know, and just overall, like you mentioned control. And I'm like, well, I think it's, you know, people trying to control people like wanting to, you know, some people wanting to be leaders, some people wanting to just overall feel important feel heard so sometimes people sacrifice their their perspectives their grace their everything just to say something and get attention out of it and then people start following it yeah so, I mean, yeah it's good and, and it the tough part is when you gain the following what are you willing to do to keep it exactly and that's where it, it man look yeah. clout is a hell of a drug um man i, th I think that's a good place to close uh anybody else have any questions Anybody want to get up and talk? Okay, bet. Um, first of all, shout out to you getting your master's in divinity, bro. That's not an easy process. Can y'all give a hand on. to my man, Darren, also known Thank as Theo Blue. Thank also, this is one of my favorite lyricists. Like, this man has absolute bars. Um, like, I kid you not, like, top five in CHH lyrically. Mm. Easily. Bro, easily. I'm not mm. even. No, not exaggeration. Not exaggeration. Yeah. Like, like you... You can't watch what you just see now and, be that, and not, not connect to the fact he's like, it's like artistically, you know what I'm saying? I can make my body art, but guess what? Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got these bars too, bro. You feel me? <laughs> this um, how can people follow you? How can people support you? And when people hear this, what would you like the response to be in action? Yeah. Um, the support, I mean, hey, Theo Blue. Um, also do work as... I'm a breathwork coach, and so I do a lot of stuff helping people breathe better to release anxiety and uh, symptoms of maybe depression and a lot of uh, trauma that's stored inside of the body. And so I do that. I mean, I do that with the art, with the music, with ministry. And so Hate the Old Blue, you can follow me anywhere, and it's called Lavender Light Breathwork. But how I would want this to be received One of the things that's been so enriching about tonight, um, just hearing the voices of so many black women um, speaking into the issues of today um, and being in a space where black men are speaking, I feel like we're at a space where we have to develop something that I'm calling a, a post-racial spiritual community where we are informed by race and the history of America and how they've treated the indigenous people, how they treated black people, how they treated women, um, and the list goes on. 
And so we need to form communities that are informed by that. It needs to be spiritual communities where that's a part of the conversation from ground zero because there's still a lot of harm that is being created from second rate, uh, or not second rate, but secondhand theology that was built on the foundation of white supremacy or white normativity. And until new spaces are created that challenge that openly, call it into question openly and regularly, I don't think we will actually develop the space where we stop using the categories of race. For me, the space that I'm cultivated and living in, like white people don't exist. It's a mythical category. It's like a unicorn or something of that fashion. Like this category was created because black people were fighting and poor European American descendants were joining with them and they created the category of white to separate them from our collective liberation. And so they made these people live inside of a false narrative of who they are. And so whiteness does not exist. And so the more that we challenge white supremacy, yes, we have some ground that we're, we're gaining in terms of people acknowledging certain things, but it's like fighting a unicorn. You're fighting a myth. And for me, to some degree, the more you fight the myth, the more you feed the myth. <laughs> and so, but at the same time, we understand that when there's ignorance surrounding whiteness, people who are trained by white programming, whether it's television or other things, they do white things. And so there has to be a spiritual community that develops, that is deeply informed with the history, but starts developing a post-racial way of being, which means you have to start calling yourself something different. You have to start going by a new name and a new way of being in the world that is inclusive of all these different cultures and races. And so that when people ask you who you are, you don't keep calling yourself white, which means I am the person that was separated from the oppressed people and given privileges inside of the society as long as I don't become a nigger lover. Right? And so until you create a new category that people can be formally known as white, and they can say, but this is what I am now. And what I participate in now gives to black reparations. What I participate in now gives to this type of cultural uh, coming together and learning about it, uh, other cultures. What I'm in now goes to the grounds of our spirituality and uproots any way of supremacy that has been reflected throughout church history. What I'm in now actually has some type of communal living dimension. It works on healing us from the trauma that we've experienced and we openly talk about these things, but we do it from a place where we're deeply committed to each other inside of a new identity of being. Mm. And until that is formed, I feel like we just stay in the cycle because I, I believe the more you call people, the more you call white people white, they act even more white. Interesting. Interesting. And I so agree. that's what I would want. Yeah. If there's Stop anything. Stop feeding the myth. Okay. <laughs> this has been another episode of Black Man Do Talk. <laughs> When but we have overdue conversations from a black man's perspective. We appreciate y'all for tuning in. Follow us on Instagram, like, comment, subscribe, share the videos. Shouts out to our live audience. Shouts out to our guests. Do your blue in the building. It's your boy David Berry. We hope y'all have a great rest of y'all night, day, morning, whatever time you're watching this. Doubts and the lawless fees because we're all asleep dealing with issues you think. And you should just be tossed away.